This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin. Thanks for joining us. How did wild aquarium fish from South America, Africa, and Asia first get into the aquarium hobby all those many years ago? Before there were ornamental fish farms, including those here in Florida, there were fish biologists and collectors visiting exotic places and bringing back beautiful specimens of fish they found. Many of these fish are now raised on fish farms, but new species continue to enter the hobby every year. And now, ecotourists can join fish collecting trips in some of the most diverse waters of the world. My guest today is Yap Jan de Grief, an aquarium fish expert who has lived all over the world. Yap is well known in the aquarium hobby not only for his wealth of knowledge, but also for planning and leading amazing fish collecting trips for fish research and aquarium hobbyists. He has collected fish on many continents, but most of his trips have been to Central and South America, including the Amazon. Yap is a favorite speaker for hobbyist organizations and has fascinating fish stories to share. We'll be right back with our intrepid explorer, Yap Yandagrief, after these messages. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom-knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets on petliferadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Yap Jan de Grief, a well-known aquarium fish expert and collector. Hi, Yap. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, hey, Roy. Hello. How are you? Good, good. So we've got a couple questions here for you, um, and hopefully uh, you're weathering the storms we're having over here in Florida. You've had some pretty amazing experiences, which have taken you all over the world. Can you start by telling us how a Dutch citizen like yourself ends up in Southeast Asia and then Africa before you were even 14 years old? And, and how did fish fit into all of this? Um, well, uh, at the time, of course, the Netherlands Indies, which is today Indonesia, is where my mother's family uh, uh, spends their lives for several generations. And my father studied uh, tropical agriculture and uh, my, both my parents were in Indonesia in the 50s uh, where my father uh, worked on uh, different uh, plantations in, in tropical crops. And what happened is, is in 1958 there was a dispute between the Netherlands and Indonesia and all uh, Dutch citizens were uh, expatriated or, how, or they were removed from, the, from, the, from Indonesia. And there was about 150,000 people 
my parents were among among that. But my dad, a lot of these people, they when they re- repatriated to Europe, they had to change their careers. But my dad stuck with his uh, tropical agricultural uh, uh, degree, and he landed a job uh, working in in East Africa in Mozambique, which at that time was a Portuguese colony on a sugar plantation. And uh, that's kind of how a Dutch guy ends up in 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 Asia, Southeast Asia, and and East Africa. And I spent the next uh, 11 years in Africa until uh, I had to go to Europe for my schooling. But uh, but while I was in Africa, my dad always had uh, aquariums, and he would go into the fields and into the ditches and catch fish. And when I was about three years old, he took me on my first experience. This is as far as I can remember. Of course, and we went. To, this was in Mozambique, and we went on one of the little railway trolleys, uh, rail uh, rail trolleys that they uh, transported sugarcane with on the plantation. We went way out into the fields to a ditch, and uh, I caught my very first colorful fish, which happens to be Nothobranchias. And uh, as the years went by, we moved to Tanganyika, which then later on became Tanzania, and I. Uh, uh, my dad gave me a small tank, and that kind of uh, was too way too small very fast because I started catching fish everywhere and using anything I could catch fish with, like ba- uh, ba- ba- baskets and buckets, anything, any or my bare hands, and I would catch uh, uh, all fish and uh, crabs and uh, frogs and tadpoles, anything that swam in the water went into those tanks in the early years. I don't think I can imagine you ever being three years old, but I guess you must have been at some point, huh? I was, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also the dawn of what you remember, so you know, I have some vague remem- memories of the place, and uh, my dad's always amazed what I do remember uh, from the place, but I guess when you're little, uh, certain things make big imp- impressions. So after, I guess, so you spent a lot of time in Africa, obviously. Then what, what did you end up doing next after, uh, after Africa? After Africa, okay, what happened is, is on these plantations in, 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 in Tanzania later, we actually were schooled in Dutch. There was like a small group of Dutch people that worked for the Tanzanian government, and we had a Dutch teacher. But what happened after the great, where, where, where the, the first six uh, uh, years of uh, basic schooling were over then of course there was no continued Dutch schooling available in a place like uh, Tanzania or Kenya and the choice was to go to a boarding school in Nairobi where you would uh, be taught in English of course or go to back to the Netherlands and that's what happened with me I was I was uh, sent to live with uh, uh, some uh, foster parents in uh, the Netherlands for a couple of years uh, to continue my schooling uh, so that's what happened, and 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 I have two younger brothers, and after two years, uh, they became of the same age where they would have had to go to the Netherlands. My dad didn't like to have all his kids in Europe and them living in Africa, so he got a job in Suriname, and uh, so we ended up all moving to Suriname, which was at that time a part of the Netherlands uh, uh, kingdom, and and uh, in a country in South America. So we would all continue to uh, uh, our education in Dutch, and the whole family could be together. So, did you have any chance to do any um, collecting in uh, when you were in Suriname at all? It, well, see, that's kind of when things went went haywire, of course, because that was one of the big things I liked about Suriname. 
uh, I soon after moving there, I uh, became friends with a, an animal uh, slash fish collector, and he would export fish and, and, and animals, wild animals, to zoos in Europe. And so, and I was about 14 years at the time, and I worked for him as a uh, uh, fisher, fisherman. I would go in the rivers and pulling the seines and catch all sorts of fish. And instead of money, he paid me in fish that I had caught that day, which he knew I only had four aquariums. My dad wouldn't let me have more <laughs> things. So <laughs> the damage for him couldn't be that much in, in as far as in pay for fish. But I got to see a lot of wild rivers and a lot of fish that, that we call common in the hobby, like uh, glow light tetras and hatchet fish and uh, pencil fish were, were fish that I seen by the thousands when I was 14 years old. Wow. So you, you were in Suriname, and then what happened after, uh, after Suriname? Um, in Sur well, what happened was is there was political uh, problems in Suriname, and there was a big uh, strike, and we weren't schooled for almost half a year. And my dad, of course, de uh, didn't want his kids to become illiterate or st stay illiterate. So we were sent back to the Netherlands for about one year, and he looked for a, a, a job somewhere else, which ended up to be in Ecuador. And when we all moved to Ecuador, uh, we changed languages. So I was about 16 years at the time, uh, almost 17, I would think, uh, that when we m went to Ecuador and I attended an American high school in Guayaquil, uh, Ecuador. And I finished my high school degree there. And, and the same thing, you know, I was thoroughly, I had a choice. When, when I was in the Netherlands, my dad said, well, you can finish your high school here in the Netherlands. And uh, uh, or you can come come with us to 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 Ecuador, but you're going to have to change languages. And uh, uh, the chances at the time in the Netherlands to study biology were one in five. If you uh, they had a a certain amount, what they call it numerous clauses, which basically means they allowed only so many students nationwide to study uh, biology, and your chances were one in five to get one of those posts. And of course, looking at maps in South America and rivers, my mind was already made up. So I went to go uh, go to Ecuador because I was going to catch fish in in South America. It was, it just was more appealing to me. It sounds like a lot of these political unrests are around the time that you moved. It, you had nothing to do with them, of course. I hope. I don't know for sure because the <laughs> reason why we left Ecuador was actually uh, we were uh, evacuated from the plantation three times while we lived there because there was unrest between the uh, labor and the management. And uh, my dad being staff, uh, we were constantly moved to an apartment in Guayaquil while they sorted their problems out. And uh, f uh, three weeks after we left Ecuador in 1976, uh, the army moved in and over 200 people were killed in a, in uh, a ditch right in front of some of the staff houses. It was really a tragedy. Yeah, definitely. That happened in 1976, so maybe we do have something. In other words, if my dad works at a certain plantation, it's better to stay away from that plantation. That sounds right. So now, I think I remember you telling us that you, in some of the our conversations, had done a couple trips for um, Ecuador uh, in yes. terms of collection. 
Yeah, yeah. What happened was in when I was in Guayaquil, uh, one of my uh, science teachers was connected uh, or was friends with people at uh, uh, National Fisheries uh, Institute in in Guayaquil, and so I started going there in the afternoons, and and they taught me how to preserve fish with formaldehyde and uh, how to collect fish, take data and things. But what it is is Guayaquil is on the Pacific coast. And then you've got the Andean Mountains, and on the on the east side is the Amazonian part, which nobody not, never went to in those days. So I went uh, when I was, I guess, I was 16. Uh, I went there with by bus. I took buses to uh, to to jungle towns in the eastern side of the uh, of Ecuador, and I collected fish for the National Fisheries Institute, preserved them, and brought them back to them. Just, they, they had absolutely no fish from the other side of the mountain range. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So did you, were you ever in any... Uh Fear for in your life or anything? Were um, the first really the first trip the first trip was kind of was kind of weird because I had not brought with me my passport because I wasn't really crossing any borders. And when you come down the mountains on the east side, there is a there's some small jungle towns that you stayed in. And I took a uh, dugout boat uh, floating down the Napo River to another town called. Uh, uh, Francisco de Oriana, uh, nicknamed Coca, is is the name of the town. But it's a, it's you know it's a six-hour trip down the river, and it's in the middle of. At the time, was they were very sensitive, so as we were getting off the boat, uh, they didn't like the fact that I only had a high school picture ID with me, and uh, I was deported out of the area on on top of a bunch of cement bags in a military <laughs> vehicle to uh, to another uh, to another town <laughs> and uh, so so I couldn't finish my collecting trip the first first year so so anyway so I had to cut that trip short bring back the fish to the institute and the next year I went again but this time I brought my passport and I actually went further down Napo River closer towards the uh, border with Peru and uh, uh, along with me were two teachers from the American uh, high school in Guayaquil, and we went to a uh, Indian uh, village there, and we bought Indian artifacts, uh, the real ones, not made for tourists at that time, <laughs> and we got uh, we traded for those, and we brought those back along with us on the way back, and put those in the museum at the school, and and while doing that, I also collected a bunch of fish. Uh, more fish for the for the for the National Fisheries Institute. Yeah, it sounds like it, and it sounds like you kind of had a experience in collection all throughout your life. How did you end up in Florida, and then how did you end up getting involved with taking people out, as well as maybe even more collection for researchers? Well, what what happened, of course, is after graduating from high school, I couldn't go back to the Netherlands for college, and so we applied to a number of universities in in United States. And Florida State University was one of the first to have its paperwork done, so I ended up going to Florida State. But uh, but I had to wait a half a year, so on the way there, I moved to Curacao, and I lived on Curacao 
uh, on a, in a marine biological station and basically I got a room and uh, uh, in, in return for working there and I did volunteer work of just helping uh, other bio biologists and scientists with their studies so so I ended up diving and, and collecting sponges and, and collecting all kinds of other uh, urchins and uh, other, other uh, biological specimens in the water and I also ended up working for World Wildlife Fund uh, uh, studying uh, uh, flamingos. And so we would go to Bonaire Island and we would go to Venezuela and we'd do counts on the birds and we'd take uh, uh, samples of their droppings and see what it is that they, that, that, uh, what they were eating and all these kind of things. And uh, uh, I was there for about half a year and then I continued on to Florida State where I uh, started uh, studying biology. And then uh, how did you end up, I guess, where you are now? That's a, well, being at, uh, being at the Marine Biological Institute in, in, in Curaçao, uh, you know, you had visions of uh, this Jacques Cousteau-like life, which, which is what I wanted. You know, I wanted to be out in the river. And, but I also noticed that the people that I collected the samples with, they, uh, we would spend one afternoon or two days collecting specimens, and then they'd disappear three, four months into a laboratory uh, studying the, the, the samples that we'd taken. And I said, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. So, and I also noticed that most biologists don't make a lot of money uh, career-wise. So... I uh, realized, I said, well, I wanted to live in all places as I grew up in so many of them. So I kind of started uh, uh, off with the idea of copying my dad's career. I said, well, I'm going to go to South America and seek my fortune there, but not in biology. So uh, I, I started focusing on agriculture and uh, not knowing anything about agriculture, I uh, interviewed for a job uh, here in America, and they, I was hired because I spoke both Spanish and English as a foreman on a on a big big tomato farm here in Florida. Okay, and uh, so that's how I ended up in Florida. That sounds great. You know, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about some of the trips you've gone on and, and some of the stories you have. But uh, we'll have to dis continue our discussion with you after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLiferadio.com. We're back and continuing our discussion with my guest, Yap Yan DeGree, aquarium fish expert and collector. 
So yeah, you um, obviously have been all over the world and have some pretty amazing experiences. How, I was just curious, how many languages do you speak? Well, some people say I speak eight, but I, I would say I, I speak three very uh, decently, and then the other five I kind of dabble along when I need to. I'm assuming that that must help you when you're taking people on your trips as well. Um, yes, yes. Uh, you know, and actually I like uh, tangling with languages, so it's not something that I'm afraid of. Uh, I'm not afraid to make a mistake or say something wrong, uh, because usually it means people laugh at you, or, and it uh, doesn't matter to me. Uh, you have to have a little bit of uh, sense of humor to work your way through a new language. Now, what, what happens with, uh, uh, with uh, to get back at the tomatoes, uh, I ended up on the tomato farm. Uh, we, I ended up running the packing house. I work for a family business. Okay. So part of the year, uh, I run the packing house, and my brothers-in-law, they, they, work, they do the actual growing. And this gives me about uh, a three-month window between seasons twice a year, and my interest in the fish still is there. So I, since I live on the farm, I have ample space to keep fish. And, and that allows me to make trips to start collecting fish for myself. And pretty soon I was collecting fish for uh, universities and, uh, and uh, fish farmers in the area that I live in. So uh, I was often looking for specific fish for those farms to get them fish that they could use uh, uh, in, their, in their business. How did you get involved with the uh, eco-tours and, and uh, Aquarius, you know, the hobbyists? Okay, this, this is, you know, 20 years, 20 some years later, and I've been, you know, of course, haven't had experience collecting fish all over the place. Uh, my son was in, uh, also at Florida State University in his last year, and I decided, well, we need to do one more collecting trip together. Now, I've taken him on other trips before. But it was kind of like a last-minute decision, and there is a, uh, a margarita tours is a uh, uh, fish collecting uh, organization, I guess. Uh, uh, they they make trips in out of Iquitos, Peru, where they take uh, aquarists for a week, uh, either upstream or downstream, uh, to collect fishes that they have uh, seen in pictures and had in their aquariums. And these guys allow, it gives them a chance to catch their own fish. So uh, I decided, well, I'm going to just go as a tourist. So I bought two tickets, one for my son and myself, and we tagged along uh, as, with, with one of those groups. And while I was there, it turned out that one of the tour guides actually was hanging up his cleats, and they were looking for somebody to... Uh, to, uh, to to uh, lead uh, tour groups and 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 uh, the, both the operator of the tour of the company and I got along very well, so they offered me the position and so ever since then I've been uh, taking groups to to Peru uh, for the last six seven years. What kind of uh, preparation do you have to do when you're leading a trip and and what sort of regulations do some of these countries have? Do you want to focus just on the Peru thing or, or in general? Um, I guess either. Do you want to talk about Peru first? Yeah, the Peru is probably is more organized, of course, because well, what happens there is, is things are already done for most people. So the, the, the only thing is, I guess, you have to do is pull out your wallet and pay. Uh, <laughs> but, well, it's kind of what it boils down to in the end. Uh, is uh, uh, all the 
all the all the uh, paperwork and the legalities are taken care of by that uh, margarita tours company itself okay. and 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 my job is basically to to come along uh we catch fish help them with the identification of the fish uh i also take the people after the after we come back to iquitos i actually take all the people to wholesalers because it's logical that we are not catching each and every fish that is of interest to these people. So we go to wholesalers and see what's available at a specific time in Iquitos. And what, you can buy them cheap, of course. Then we take them to this fish exporter. Uh, we identify the fish and turn in a list and get a permit. All the fish get packed and shipped by this exporter to Miami, goes through a broker who then uh, picks it up at, the, at, the, at customs uh uh, clears clears the paperwork and sends the boxes of fish to the different people uh, that have their boxes uh, uh, handled this way. So 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 basically, all that trouble is being done for you. Okay. So where where are the people staying, uh, or how how does the uh, are the While accommodations? While we're in Peru. Okay. Uh -huh. Usually, what happens is they arrive the uh, on the weekends, the one or two days before departure. And uh, in, in Iquitos, and they are put up in a hotel, and it's actually a three-star hotel, of course, three Peruvian stars. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, that, that's, you know, it's an air-conditioned hotel, and it's, uh, there's a few things to see in, in Iquitos itself of interest. Uh, I wouldn't recommend staying there for three weeks because you're out in a jungle town. But, uh, but, 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 you know, one day is easy to fill, to get acquainted with the place. And usually what we do is we board the ship at, uh, in Sunday morning and we go out of port. And as I said earlier, we go either one week upstream or one week downstream. And that means basically five days, though. And you're, you've, you've got cabins and, and uh, uh, bunk beds to sleep in on the boat. Uh, all your meals are, are prepared, so you don't have to worry about, uh, uh, I guess you would say, Atahualpa's revenge. Uh, Montezuma would be <laughs> in New Mexico. But, uh, of course, that, that, that's not always avoidable. Uh, the last trip we had on, pretty much everybody got a good case of uh, the stomach cramps, including myself. Ah, uh, okay. And uh, so, so, so every now and then you, <laughs> you have to put up with a few days of uh, spending some considerable amount of time on a toilet. <laughs> but, uh, but in between that, we, you know, we catch all the fish. We, we, we seen, uh sandbanks where you get bigger fish. You know, sometimes stingrays, uh, uh, big, uh, other large uh, catfish. Uh, and we also go uh, up uh, stream with uh, into blackwater creeks, and this is where you would catch your neon tetras and uh, your epistogrammas and your corridoras type fish. So, what are you using then to collect these fish? Obviously, the um, the river's a pretty big river. What do I usually want? What do you use for uh, to collect the fish? You mentioned uh, uh, primarily um, uh, mostly, insane, you know, you know, uh, yeah, for the for you know for the for the for the river river holes, of course, we use a giant seine. But uh, but when we go up these blackwater streams, we everybody's pretty much with a dip net, and everybody has a blast uh, dipping up tons and tons of fish, and uh, uh, yeah, we always catch much more fish than we can really carry back with us. If you had to choose, what would you consider your favorite place to collect fish? For myself? Sure. Or, for your, well, um, for both, for yourself and for uh, for the aquarists or the aquarium hobby. 
I think I think this Aikido thing for for a lot of hobbyists is 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 a very nice thing because basically it's very relaxing. You don't really have to worry about getting shot at or or getting into <laughs> any legal trouble or anything. So and and you get to see the exciting fish. You know, people that uh, that that have all these thoughts about uh, uh, piranhas and 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 stingrays and 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 uh, things. Uh, uh, you get to actually see them. You actually get to catch some of those with your with your own self. Uh, this last trip we were on, we had three guys in the same day. On the very first day that we had them going off the boat, all three of them got buzzed by uh, an electric eel, by the same <laughs> eel. How, how they managed to, to nail the same eel in the same spot, I don't know, but they did. <laughs> that's, that's but I mean, it's a, it's it's funny because I've never been uh, zung by an electric eel, and uh, and here was three of them who got nailed uh, within within half an hour's time, and it was kind of neat because it's something that I mean you're not going to get hurt from it, but it's an interesting story to tell afterwards. No one uh, got bitten by bitten up by any piranhas, I assume. We catch no, we catch piranhas all the time. Uh, most of the time, they're very small, and 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 they're probably you know they they're probably a disappointment to most people because they're really not as exciting as you as the <laughs> stories are. Now I know there's also uh, not not that it's an aquarium fish, but there's also the uh, that little tiny catfish, the uh, candiru, oh, the te- right? Yeah, candiru. Yeah, we we do catch those. We we okay. we, we we catch those. Uh, as a matter of fact, this last trip, I uh, I nailed about twenty of them in one dip uh, at some point among a bunch of leaf litter. Wow! And, yeah, uh, those those I'd be afraid uh, of, and and uh, we probably won't want to talk too much more about those. <laughs> but uh, just make sure you wear tight underwear. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what's uh you, you must have uh, you mentioned the, the electric eel. Do you, do you have any some other uh, really kind of good stories re- regarding a uh, collection during some of these trips? Well, here's one thing, you know, you, when you're watching uh, Discovery Channel, so you'll see programs on Arapima Gigas, which is like, one, uh, you know, among one of the largest, uh, longest fish, uh, freshwater fish in the world. Right. Uh, we actually get to eat that on the boat because it's a consumption fish in Peru. And what they do is they they uh, they collect the, the, the fry and raise them in ponds uh, uh, legally. And it's sold as meat, and 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 so one of the uh, you'll get at least two meals that has arapima uh, in it uh, uh, as as the meat. So wow! And I think for folks that aren't familiar with those, those are the really large kind of arowana type fish, right? They can get to yeah, it's an arowana type, and they can get like ten feet long. Now, what does so it taste a, like? What does arapima taste like? It's a it's a very mild fish to eat actually, so it's not to, like you're going to have something very very exotic. As a matter of fact, I've never seen somebody say that they really didn't like it because it is quite neutral in 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 flavor. So, in, I guess in terms of you mentioned a number of different fish, including uh, neon tetras that people collect during uh, Iquitos, the Iquitos trips. What uh, what fish do people usually want to bring back with them? Generally, you, you you know you have two kind of crowds. So often you have the kind of guys that want everything with big teeth and spines and aggression, <laughs> the the kind of fish that swallow whole fish and uh, uh, fish half their length and all those kind of things. And like I said, uh, fangs sticking out of every side. You have those kind of guys, or you have the guys that like the little bitty fish and they tend to be going more for little epistogrammas and corridoras and and uh, and tetras. So kind of a mix. 
Yeah, well, gotcha. you know, the one thing that we do do on these trips is we catch all all kinds. So so everybody should be able to find something that they like. Uh, angelfish are a very popular item, and fortunately, we do catch those almost. Well, we catch them every trip, and and there's some beautiful angels coming out of that portion of the of the Amazon River. Wow. So there are people and Oscars. People are crazy about Oscars. Which, which, which is something I don't understand personally because, first of all, I want the Oscar to be large enough so I can fry it in a skillet. That's what, <laughs> that's the kind of Oscar I like. But why go through the trouble of bringing the thing back to the U.S. when every pet store has Oscars? Right. But, but that's true. of course, it's the same thing. Of course, you have the feeling that you caught the thing yourself, and that's a very, very uh, satisfactory feeling. That's true. Uh, as a matter of fact, myself, you're talking about having gone all over the world. But last year, I actually brought back with me 22 little neon tetras. I have set up a special aquarium in my living room with those neon tetras. And I mean, it's a 10 cents fish in the wholesale. But here, these are ones I actually carried them in a bag out of a river all the way back to the United States. Yeah, that's quite a challenge, definitely. So, uh, and they're all doing pretty well right now. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, it's a very nice thing. And and that's the appeal of the whole trip, of course, catch your own fish, you know, the kind of fish that you, you wander into a pet store and say, oh, wow, this is beautiful, this is fish, you know, here you get to catch them yourself and actually bring them back yourself, you know, that's that's a, that's a very nice feeling. So in, in terms of, I guess, you know, if there may be some folks that are wondering about the uh, impact of collecting these fish, what is there any environmental impact at all or what we're doing is so incredibly minimal you know if you think about it five guys or eight guys with a dip net in this giant river that is a mile wide and they're they're working for an hour with their little dip nets is it's it's completely negligible uh, okay what we're doing yeah, they, 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 I mean, one farmer d- dumping a, a can of gasoline in a creek will do a lot more harm to his river than than what we're doing. No, that's true. It's nothing to worry about. So, how did you how did you get? I know you're pretty active with a lot of the aquarium societies. How did you get involved with with the aquarium societies? Okay, well, what happens is doing the collecting, I decided to, uh, to start taking fish pictures, and and I by no means I'm not a very good fish photographer. And I burned many, many, many rolls of fish on fish, on, on, on of, of uh, rolls of film on taking pictures of fish. But uh, so I would do slideshows. So, so it's kind of a, a fun thing. Uh, going to these these foreign countries and collecting the fish gives me material to do a a, a documentary, a slideshow, and then aquarium uh, uh, societies around the United States would ask me to uh, give them a talk, and I would go to Niagara Falls and actually get to see the Niagara Falls because it happen it so happens that I have a talk about fish in Uruguay. And I'm talking about fish in Uruguay in the evening, and, and during the daytime we go visit the falls, or uh, go to Sacramento, uh, California. We get to go see uh, uh, Yosemite National Park and uh, and uh, what is it, the aquarium there in San Francisco. And uh, 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 you go to Chicago, you get to see Shedd's Aquarium, and uh, so 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 you get to see the United States by going to other countries. That's true. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've got so many more questions for you, but unfortunately we're out of time. 
Uh, I want to definitely thank you very much, and uh, I wanted to know, do you have any uh, final words of wisdom that would be uh, good for our current and future hobbyists and collectors? For the aquariums? Yeah. Well, when your fish tank gets too full, buy a new aquarium. <laughs> That's a good one. Very good. Yeah, I have, I have 85 aquariums, and it's not enough. We'll have to figure out how to get oh, you some more aquariums. You, you know, the thing about that, of course, is like they say, it's uh, it's uh, therapeutic, right? You look at an aquarium and it lo- it lowers your heart rate and it and it mellows you out. In my case, with 85 aquariums, when I look at aquarium, I think, oh, shoot, I need to change the water in this one. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. <laughs> so well, it, it just adds more work. It keeps but if you, you like that work, then it's fun. Yeah. Exactly. It keeps you young. Well, thanks very much, Jaff. I appreciate your, uh, your time. And I also want to thank our producers, especially Mark Winter, for making this show possible. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, please email me at roy at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, another of my favorite places to see fish. Until next time, visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy and consider a collecting trip uh, with Yop and uh, Margarita Tours. We may put some more information on, online on the web for those of you that are interested. And uh, so until next time, we'll see you then. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.